Thank you, music team, and thank you, Melody, for that time of worship. Good morning, ladies. Oh, what a great day to be here. I'm Deb Haygood, and what a joy to be with you this morning looking at your smiling and beautiful faces, and what a glorious day it is outside, um, sunny and beautiful. In about 45 minutes, you can be out there um, in the sun, maybe going to, the, to lunch. Um, I also wanted to thank those of you that had moved up front a little bit. I had asked some of the small group leaders to tell you that. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, yesterday, I went to a conference on how to be a better speaker. And uh, you can be the judge if I learned anything. But one thing they kept talking about was shrink the gap. Now, I think they were talking about emotionally and mentally trying to um, you know, connect and be with you guys. But I didn't know if I had learned that much. So I thought if I could just get you guys a little closer up front, I could shrink the gap that way. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. So glad you're here today uh, for this study of Ezra. This is week three. And that song, that is my prayer, um, that we come with open hearts. Uh, oh, let the ancient words impart. And that's what I'm praying for uh, God to do for us today. So this is week three of our study, and we're calling it Coming Home, The Promises and Providence of God. And we're looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're seeing how God kept his promises um, as he brings the exiles from Babylon, the Israelites, his people, home to Judah. As he brings them home to Judah, and he does this through his providence. His providence, which is God bringing his will to pass in all of life, ultimately for the purpose of Jesus Christ coming to earth. Now, last week we saw um, this first wave, this first group of exiles returning to Judah under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And the first thing they did, the people of God rebuilt the altar. And they offered sacrifices to God. And they uh, began to keep the feasts and the sacrifices that God had instructed them uh, through Moses in that time that they came out of Egypt. Now you remember that? We talked about that. Moses delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt where they were... uh, being held as slaves and on the way to the promised land he stops at Mount Sinai and God gives Moses the law because he loved these people and he wanted to bless these people and these laws were for their protection they also were to teach them how to worship God and so last week we saw them being obedient to the law celebrating God being in his presence and it was called worship And we also had a great time of worship. After our small groups, we came in here and we had a longer time of singing, lifting up our praises to God through song and through testimony. Um, And I also want to say that Amy is uh, much better now. And she taped her lecture and it is on CDs out in the great room. And I listened to it. You will be blessed if you hear it. So please pick that up and listen to Amy's lesson from last week. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 4 of Ezra. And if you did your homework or you were in your small group, then you know that this is about opposition. Opposition. And from this point on in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, we will see much opposition. This is the first lesson on it, but it's not going to be the last. In fact, nothing that is attempted for God 
will go unchallenged. From this point forth in Ezra and Nehemiah, we will see much opposition. And that's not all that unusual. We see opposition to God's people all throughout the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, and then throughout history up to this very present day. In fact, I had read several quotes about opposition. I want to give you uh, a couple. One says... Whenever God initiates a spiritual work, there will be opposition. But God is sovereign and faithful. His enemies will not prevail. And then Eugene Peterson says this, Men and women who find their basic identity in God don't find an easy time of it. They never have. They never will. And he goes on to say that as believers in Jesus, our identity is under constant challenge and threat, sometimes by hostile assault, oftentimes by subtle and smiling seductions. I had one more quote by Irving Jensen, and he said, whenever there is progress in God's work, the adversary, Satan himself, sends opposition So opposition to the Lord and his work and his will and his people, it's out there. It's out there. So let's turn to Ezra 4 and begin looking at this uh, chapter. And while you're turning there, I just want to say, ladies, um, this is... This Bible study is deep. Um, We are digging deep. And sometimes it may seem a little difficult, especially if this is your first Bible study ever. So please hang in there. Please keep coming back. I'm so um, glad you all are here today. If there's anything that just seems so confusing, you just don't understand it, or you don't agree with it, please come up here and talk to me afterwards. I would love, love, love to talk to you. Please come and talk to me if there's something that seems really hard to understand. Okay, so let's begin reading Ezra 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of the Saradon king of Assyria who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. All right, uh, what's going on here? You know, at first glance, this might look like the people of God are a little unfriendly, maybe even sound a little hostile. In fact, how many of you thought, whoa, that was rude? Anybody kind of read that and thought, rude? You know, that's when I first read through it, I thought, oh my goodness. So let's talk a little bit about what's happening here so we can have a good understanding. Let's start with the Jewish leaders first. We have Zerubbabel. Um, We talked about him last week. Okay, i got to tell you this joke that um, Laurie Egner sent me about Zerubbabel. Um, Her husband, Bill, teaches the Old Testament survey. He is an Old Testament scholar extraordinaire. He always says, Zerubbabel rebuilt the rubbable. So, I love it. Good. I'm glad you laughed. I thought that was funny. So, when, you're, when you hear Zerubbabel now, you can think, Ezra rebuilt the temple because he rebuilt the rubbable. Okay, that's Zerubbabel. And we know that he is from the line of David, tribe of Judah, because he was the grandson of King Jehoiakim, one of the latter uh, kings in Judah. And he is the governor of Judah now. He's representing the governmental side of leadership. And then we have Joshua, or sometimes it's spelled Joshua 
Yeshua, he is the high priest. He is representing the spiritual side of leadership. And we know, since he is a high priest, that he is from the tribe of Levi and from the line of Aaron. That's what all the high priests are from. And then we have these other heads. And the thing that's so, other leaders of families. And I think the thing that's so important is there is unity. They all agree when they go back and tell this group, no way. Okay, now who is this group that comes offering help? Well, in chapter 3 last week, in verse 3, it called them the people around them. Kind of like their neighbors. And these are specifically the neighbors that are to the north and kind of northwest. In verse 1 today, we saw they're called enemies. Kind of gives us a clue uh, when they come to say they will help. And it says they're enemies of Judah and Benjamin. So let's talk a little bit about who these people are, how they got to be where they are. Okay, Judah and Benjamin, those are the tribes of the southern kingdom. The two tribes um, from the 12 tribes of Israel. Those were the 12 sons of Jacob, and their families became the 12 tribes of Israel. And we know that after King Solomon died, the kingdom split. And 10 tribes, they revolt, and they are in the northern part of Israel. And they um, really are on a downward slide away from God from the very start. Because we said before they have no good kings. Now what I mean by that is there was not one king in the northern kingdom of Israel that followed God wholeheartedly. Not one. Pretty early on they began worshiping an idol here and an idol there and putting up a high place like their neighbors did. And so they were um, on the path away from God right from the start. And so that is why God allowed the Assyrians, the world power, to come in 722 B.C and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, these ten tribes. And what the king of Assyria did in those days, he would take most of the Israelites out, disperse them through Assyria. He left a few there. And he also left some Assyrians, officials and prominent people. And they intermarried with these Israelites that were left in the northern kingdom. So pretty soon we have this mixed people. And their worship is even becoming more mixed. Because they're worshiping some things of God, the God of Israel. But they're also worshiping these idols, the high places that they've been doing and now they're worshiping the Assyrian gods. So they have a lot of different worship stuff going on here. And we see this in 2 Kings 17. I have that verse on your verse sheet. But let me read just a few um, verses there. Because I think this explains. And this seven, uh, 2 Kings 17, is, this is talking about what happened after Assyria conquers the northern kingdom. Okay, 34 says, To this day they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. Verse 35 says, When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, Do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt with his mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship. To him you shall bow down and to him offer sacrifices. You must always be careful to keep the decrees and the ordinances and the commands and on and on. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant I have made with you and do not worship other gods. He says it like about four or five times here. Rather, worship the Lord your God it is he who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. You remember that first commandment. 
of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Do not worship other gods. This was big. Verse 40 says, They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. So that's... uh, that's what we have here. That's who these people are um, north of Jerusalem and Judah. These are these mixed people in this province called Samaria. And this used to be the northern kingdom of Israel. Now it's um, Assyrians have taken over. It's called Samaria. And um, this worshiping God and other things as well, that is called syncretism. When you worship God and you also are worshiping other gods and other idols. And God does not see this as real worship. We just read this. He sees it as disobeying his command. He sees it as sin and rebellion. So these are the people who come to Zerubbabel and they say, let us help. And very wisely, uh, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel and his sidekicks say, no way. No way. We will build the temple ourselves. This temple, holy temple, to the holy Lord God of Israel, the one and true only God. We will build it. If they had added um, anything to any other gods, this would have been fatal. We saw last week how they took such pains to... uh, return true Israelites back to Jerusalem. They had to know their ancestry. They had to know the town, the land from which they came from. These true people of God returning as God's people, following God, obeying God, and worshiping him alone. It would have been fatal if they had mixed in the worship of other gods at this time. It would have proved fatal to the spiritual life of this new community. And by the way, Zerubbabel adds, um, King Cyrus of Persia told us for just us to build this. So he kind of adds that. He's under the authority of Cyrus to do it, which gives his argument some more weight. So that's what's going on here. So let's see what happens next in verse 4. Ezra 4. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans. So we see here um, the discernment and the wisdom of Zerubbabel and the other leaders um, because they, are, they were being deceptive. It was subtle opposition. They came acting like friends, wanting to seem like-minded so that they could infiltrate the Israelites and sabotage the work of the temple um, from within. You know, we can be grateful today that God used the decision of these Israelites to maintain the integrity of this Jewish community and continue his plan of redemption. Because it was through this Jewish community who would stay true to God's word that um, Jesus Christ would come. Jesus Christ, who would be the offer of um, our eternal salvation. It's through him. Him that all the world would be blessed. And he comes through this uh, group of Israelites that are staying true to God. It's important for us today to remain committed to the integrity of our faith. We must keep the message true and pure. What message, you may ask? 
What message are you talking about? I'm talking about the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. We must keep that true and pure. And so on your verse sheet, I've got a few verses, just because I think that's so important, to look at. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, here we see God, the gracious, loving God, pursuing a rebellious people. That's the story of God throughout the Bible. And he has a plan for us. We saw it way back in Genesis chapter 3. And his plan was Jesus. Jesus was going to come to earth and he was going to die in our place so that we might have a relationship with God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is Paul telling us, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves holy enough to be in a relationship with God. Every time the Israelites offered sacrifices, it pointed to Christ who would be that ultimate final sacrifice, the atonement for our sin, so that we can have a relationship forever with a holy God. And Jesus tells us this in John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is the gospel message. And Jesus also says in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is so important. That is the pure and true message. We don't want to add anything to that gospel message. We don't want to subtract anything from that gospel message. We want to remain committed to the integrity and the truth of that message. Okay. Let's get back to this. So their neighbors and their enemies, they start with this subtle opposition. And then we see in verse 4 that they moved into direct opposition. It says that they um, used discouragement and fear tactics. And it says set out, which means they deliberately planned ways to discourage the Jews and to make them afraid. They planned ways to do that. And that word there for discouraged literally means to make the hands weak. To make the hands weak. He disabled them. They were disabled by despair. And if you've ever felt despair, if you've ever known hopelessness, then you know how disabling that can be. They also set out to make them afraid. Possibly they used threats, um, intimidation. And then in verse 5, it says they hired counselors. Okay, now this is legal harassment. You know, maybe they bribed Persian officials to obstruct the builders in some kind of ways. Maybe they even had paid enemies at the court in Persia to um, spread propaganda against these returned exiles. And how long did it last? How long did this harassment and um, intimidation and fear last? Well, the last part of verse 5 tells us, during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So that time period is 16 years. But um, I think Ezra's trying to say it was ongoing. It was never ceasing. It was unending. And then in verse 6, all the way through verse 23, we see Ezra, he's going to give us more accounts of opposition um, that the returning exiles had to face. More opposition. And this opposition in these verses happens in the future. Now, um, 
I know that was a little confusing today, so let me just add this really quickly. Um, Ezra wrote this book of Ezra during the time of Nehemiah. When these first five verses are going on during Zerubbabel, Ezra's not even born yet. So he is writing. This is a history book that he is writing. So these verses... 6 through 23, this isn't a vision he has. For Ezra, this would be the recent past as he writes this book of Ezra. But in the timeline of chapter 4, it's happening in the future of these verses 1 through 5. It's happening, and you have your um, chart there. You see Cyrus. This is happening during the time that Cyrus is king. Then we have Darius. Then we have these other kings. Um, Ezra is writing during the time of Artaxerxes. And let me just give you this analogy real fast. I hope this helps. But if I was going to write a history book today about the Civil War, and then all of a sudden in the middle of the Civil War, to make a point, I begin to talk about the Civil Rights Movement in 1960. And I start telling you about Rosa Parks, and this is what happened later on. You all in this room would not be confused one bit because you would know Civil War, yeah, And then you would know, oh yes, civil rights movement in the 1960s, I know that. So that wouldn't be confusing. That's really what Ezra's doing. He's writing about this opposition that Zerubbabel is having to face. And then to make his case, then to to make the point that the opposition was never ending, he writes a few more episodes of opposition that were going to happen after verses 1 through 5, but it would be the recent past for Ezra. All right, I hope I didn't make that maybe more confusing. But anyway, so let's go on. We're going to look at these verses because I think these verses are important, even though they're happening um, in the future here. Um, these, this is why they're um, important. First, he really wants us to understand how um, hassled and threatened and opposed um, the work for God is in Jerusalem. He wants us to know that it's opposed. It was unending. It was not just unpleasant. It was a great hardship. Constant danger and conflict for the people of Israel. Secondly, I think as we understand about these surrounding neighbors and the opposition that uh, they were giving to the Israelites, uh, it really helps us to understand how wise and courageous Zerubbabel was in making that decision. And it also is going to help us um, understand what an accomplishment it is when the temple is finally finished in chapters 5 and 6. We're going to look at that next week. And then a fourth thing, it's going to help us understand Ezra's heartbreak in chapters 9 and 10. Okay, now, you asked me what Ezra's heartbreak is. Wait until we get to chapters 9 and 10, and you will see. But when we get there, remember these verses, okay? So let's start looking at chapter 6, I mean verse 6, and we're going to go through this, and hopefully um, it will make sense. Okay, first accusation. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah in Jerusalem. So look on your chart. You see that Xerxes comes after Darius. This is about 50 years later from these verses 1 through 5. And we don't know what that is. We know that Xerxes from the book of Esther is the king of Persia who makes Esther his queen. And then we see um, in verse 7... A letter uh, of accusation is written in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And it's written by these guys, and it's written in Aramaic. And so Artaxerxes, this is the next time period, he is the king 
after Xerxes. So this, um, these next two things are happening maybe about 100 years after verses 1 through 5. Um, Artisar, okay, so let's, let's look at verse 8 there. Here is the second letter that's written to King Artaxerxes. And we get more information here. So we're going to look at this letter. Let, let me say about that first letter, the Aramaic. That was just the common language of the time. And um, the, they're saying that the letter was written that. The Jews would have understood Aramaic because they would have learned it in Babylon. They also knew Hebrew. So they were bilingual. But for us, it doesn't matter because it's all in English. So, yay. Okay. So verse 8. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshay, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, uh, verse 9, the commanding officer, and Shem said the secretary, together with all these associates. Now, he begins to name all these officials from all these places. And it says um, that the great and honorable as Sir Banapal deported and settled in the city of Samaria, place we were just talking about, and elsewhere in the trans-Euphrates. Okay, let me just explain that trans-Euphrates because we're going to see that again. Um, and this is a little bit of geography. Trans-Euphrates means across the Euphrates. That is the Euphrates River. So you might remember from your geography, we have Persia, which is present-day Iran. Next to it, to the west, Iraq. Euphrates River runs through it. After that, Syria. Then to the west is Israel, Mediterranean Sea. And Israel's pretty small in there. Okay, so everything that was west of that Euphrates River in Iraq, that is the trans-Euphrates. And what these guys are trying to say here is, hey, King Artaxerxes, it's not just me and Shimshay writing this letter. We got everybody from this whole area agrees with us. He's trying to make a big case here. Not sure it's all true, but anyway, that's what he's saying. Verse 11, this is a copy of the letter they sent to him, to King Artaxerxes. From your servants, note that word, the men of trans-Euphrates. Verse 12, the king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Okay, let's stop right there. If you look on your chart that I gave you and you look under Artaxerxes, you see there the exiles return with Ezra. You see that those are chapters 7 and 8 um, that we're going to look at in a couple of weeks. That was the second group of exiles that go back to Jerusalem, and Ezra is their leader. And I said that first week, this happens about 80 years after Zerubbabel brings that first group. So, you see where that happens, where Ezra comes into the pictures, chapters 7 and 8. And then let me also say... Um, in the book of Ezra, we do not see them talking about rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. So we know that that happened after the book of Ezra closes and before the book of Nehemiah opens. And um, in that time period, in fact, on your chart, I've got it there, it probably happened, this incident that they're writing about in this letter happened about two years before Nehemiah opens up. And you remember, Ezra's writing this whole book of Ezra during the time of Nehemiah. Okay, so 
This is who they're talking about. These are the Jews that came up. These are the exiles that came led by Ezra. And it says now they are rebuilding that wall. And it says in verse 13, Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tributes, or duty will be paid. And the royal revenues will suffer. And since we are under obligation to the palace, and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king. We love you, king. It is all about you. So that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors, and in these records you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place of rebellion from ancient times. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if the city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. Whoa. That is a lot of inflammatory language there. Did you see that? They use words such as um, rebellious and wicked. And some translations, I think, say harmful and evil. This is strong language. They are trying to um, paint a letter that is very alarming. A very alarming picture for King Artaxerxes. And they mix the truth with untruth. Yes, they're rebuilding the walls, but no, they haven't stopped paying taxes and tribute to the king. And saying that just by rebuilding the walls, that everybody in the whole trans-Euphrates is going to kind of join up with them, and King Artaxerxes will be left with nothing, that is exaggeration. That's exaggeration. And the authors of this letter knew the Jews um, did not pose a serious threat to Artaxerxes. They were using inflammatory and exaggerated language. It was meant to alarm King Artaxerxes, to scare him. And they wrote it all under the pretense of loyalty to the king. Did you see that? We're your servants. We're under obligation to the palace. You know, we can't stand by and watch you be dishonored. You know, it's all about you. They never mention their own self-interest and their true motives, which is personal gain and power in this area. So let's see what Artaxerxes says in verse 18. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence, and I issued an order and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. You know, they might have been talking about during the time of King Hezekiah. And I want to throw this in because I think it will kind of help with the history. But if you were here during as Isaiah, you remember King Hezekiah was the king of the southern kingdom called Judah. And he was a good and godly king. He was king when Assyria came in and conquered the northern kingdom. And then Assyria came down and tried to conquer the southern kingdom at that time. But King Hezekiah called out to God. He says he humbled himself and asked God to save them. And Isaiah, the prophet, he hears from God and he goes to Hezekiah and he says, um, The Lord your God will intervene. And intervene he does. That very night, he sends the angel of death. Um, 185,000 soldiers dead outside the walls of Jerusalem. Um, the king of Assyria looks at this, packs up, and goes home. And God keeps Judah from being conquered at that time. He gives them 150 more years to follow him, which they don't really. And so Babylon comes in, the new world power, and takes them into captivity. Maybe this was the revolt they're talking about. We don't know for sure. 
But in verse 20 it says, Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now this is David and Solomon. And all the Jews reading this book of Ezra would know that's who they're referring to because these are the glory days of Israel. This is when Israel's united. They were following and obeying God. God was blessing them. It was a time of wealth and power and glory for Israel. They had much influence in the world. But... That was a long time ago. David reigned in 1000 BC, so that was over 500 years um, from this time of Artaxerxes. Nonetheless, this is what we see Artaxerxes says. 21. Now issue an order to these men to stop work, so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow? To the detriment of the royal interests. Okay. We see that Artaxerxes says, stop the work. He believes all this and he says, stop the work. But the great thing that he puts in here are those four words, until I so order. Because rulings of the Persian kings were very hard to overturn. But by putting those four words in there, that left um, King Artaxerxes a way to restart the building again. And we see that he does exactly that in Nehemiah chapter 2. He lets Nehemiah return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And then verse 23, as soon as the copy of the letter uh, was read to Rehum and Shimshai, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. This was exactly what they were hoping King Artaxerxes would write back to them. And they do not waste any time. One translation says they made haste and went back and stopped the work. And not only did they force them to stop, but it also, they burned and destroyed. And we know that from Nehemiah 1.3 where it says... Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. You know, this actually may have helped Nehemiah when he goes to Artaxerxes and asks permission to go back, when he tells them that the walls have been destroyed and the gates have been burned. And I think this is a great example of God taking something bad and using it for good. So, the beginning of verse 6, you put a parenthesis. At the end of 23, close the parentheses. These are these three oppositions um, that happen in the future. Now with verse 24, we're back in the time of Zerubbabel and the other leaders that are trying to rebuild the temple and are faced with much opposition. And what do we read? Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They stopped rebuilding the temple. And this happens during the reign of King Cyrus, and it tells us here they don't start rebuilding again until the second year of King Darius. So they take a 16-year break. 16-year break between uh, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 there. 16 years, they stop. And nobody has ordered them to stop. They do it on their own accord. And they do it because it would seem that the discouragement and the frustration and the antagonism, the hassle that they are experiencing, the never-ending pressure has brought them to this place of quitting. 
And we saw so much passion last week. Do you remember the celebration and the excitement when they laid the foundation of the temple? They were so excited about that. In fact, let's look over at verse 11. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. This is in chapter 3. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. All this passion seems to have disappeared, squelched by this persistent opposition. But I want you to stay tuned because next week, chapter 5, we're going to see things change um, in a good way. So stay tuned for next week. You're going to want to come back. So what can we learn from chapter 4 that's useful for us today as believers? What are we going to take away from this as we look at chapter 4? Well, uh, one thing is there's opposition out there. That's for sure. And so I think a good question for us is how do we continue to follow God when faced with opposition? How do we continue? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a little typo there, so change it to persecuted. Um, They will be persecuted. So opposition is out there. And first thing I think is be aware of it. Be aware of it. Um, Be discerning. Sometimes the opposition can be subtle, indirect. Sometimes it's going to be... um, come more quickly and more directly and you can see it. But for us, I think that this subtle opposition is what is most dangerous because um, we miss it. It's those little things that come in and we don't even realize it's opposition against who we are as the people of God. Um, For instance, changes in our culture that go against God's word. But over time, we get used to these changes until we accept it. And we begin to think that's true instead of the word of God. You know, maybe there are certain things that go against God's word and you've decided to take a stand against it. But standing firm doesn't seem very friendly. In fact, you don't feel very nice about it. Some people may say, you're not tolerant. Be aware. That can be subtle opposition. You know, tolerance has taken on a whole new meaning in my um, generation, just since I've been alive. You know, tolerance all of a sudden has come to mean acceptance of anything and everything. And that's not tolerance. And as followers of God, we are not to accept everything and anything. There is right and there is wrong. So how do we know? How do we know what's right and what's wrong? Well, what did Zerubbabel and those guys do back in verses 1 and 5? You know, I think they remained focused on God. And how did they do it? There's three easy, basic ways that you've heard, but I think we need to remember it. First, read his word. We know that that the first exiles, they were reading his word. Because it says in chapter 3, they were building the altar by the instructions of Moses that God um, had given Moses. Those are the first five books of the Old Testament. They knew the word. They were reading the word. And you guys are doing that very thing. You're here studying the word of God. It's when we read the word of God, we know who God is, a gracious, loving God, and we see his standards, and we know how we are to go about our lives. Secondly, go to God. Uh, Go to God in prayer, and what I mean by that is just be in relationship with God. We saw the Israelites in relationship with God. They wanted to build this altar so they could be in his presence and celebrate and worship him. 
We want to be in a relationship with God. Be in his presence. Talk to him. Listen to him. Be in relationship with him. And then a third way to remain focused on God, I think, is by being with other believers. Fellowship is important. Talking about God, talking about life, praying together, having fun together. Be with other believers. And I also think that this includes um, seeking godly counsel. If you've got a thought that you're, you know, maybe this is not the right thing I should do, but you're not sure about it, seek godly counsel. Go to maybe your small group leader or maybe an older woman that's walked with God for a while. Or maybe it's um, someone on the women's staff at Christ Chapel or your life stage pastor. Seek godly counsel. Now maybe um, some of you in this room feel that you've been doing God's work, doing a specific task, or just living daily for him, and you feel opposition. Maybe it's really strong, and you could even call it persecution. Tell other believers about it. Tell your sisters in Christ, those people in your small group, and let them encourage you. We need to be encouraged. We all need encouragement. Let others encourage you. You know, let the word of God encourage you. I gave you some verses in your homework, and there's many verses in the Old and New Testament about um, God that encourages us. When you find one that you like, put that reference in the front of your Bible so you'll know where to go in those times that you are feeling opposition or discouragement. Be encouraged. Um, I also want to say that pray for the persecuted church. When you pray for those that really their lives are in danger or their jobs um, are being taken from them, there are Christians all over the world that um, are being persecuted. Pray for them. That encourages us. Uh, A few years ago, the women's leadership team went to a small island off Tanzania called Zanzibar. And there we met a lady who had... um, put her faith in Jesus Christ, and it's a very Muslim island, strong influence there. And so her husband had turned her out, away from her children, out of her home. She had nothing, and she was living with her um, pastor's family. While we were there, she made some bags that we all bought. A lot of us carry those around, and we prayed for her. And it was such a great thing for me to um, be able to pray for someone that was really being persecuted for their faith and to think about that. And that encouraged me to stand firm in my faith as I thought about her. So pray for the persecuted church throughout the world, and let that encourage you to remain firm in your faith. And then finally... Maybe some of you are here today and you feel like the Israelites. You're ready to quit. Or maybe you feel like you've already quit. Whatever that is. Whether it's um, some area of, of your faith that you were standing firm in and you've just let that go. Or maybe you feel God talking to you, wanting you to do something, and you're just ignoring that. You feel like you've quit. Maybe you have unbelieving family or unbelieving friends, and they've pressured you so that living a godly life, making those decisions that would put you, keep you on a godly path, maybe that's just too hard. It just seems too hard. I want you to remember, God loves you. God loves you, and God is a God of second chances. All you have to do is go to God, confess whatever it is, go to God. He is quick to forgive you, and he will get you back on that right path. 
Romans 8 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, present, future, powers, height, death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves you. And secondly, remember, his plan will continue. His plan is going forward. It will continue. Isaiah 14, 24 says, The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. Ladies, as you look back and think about chapter 4 in Ezra, remember, there is opposition. It's out there. But God loves you, and his plan will continue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great God, and you are a good God. Father, we are so grateful that you are sovereign, that your plan continues even when we don't see it. And Father, how humbling and how wonderful it is that you love us, that you love us no matter where we are, what we're doing. Father, we want to love you. We want to stand firm in our faith, even when those things around us, subtle or not so subtle, are opposing us. Lord, give us the strength. Give us the grace to stand firm in our faith. We love you, Lord. Bless these women. In Jesus' name, amen.